three, two, one. Welcome to the Dave of the Dog Trainer podcast, episode one fifty two. Today we are being joined by Dr. Melanie of Canine Decoded. Um, she is a neuroscientist turned dog trainer. So let's get her on and see what we get. Hey guys. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Yes. Can you hear cool. us? Yes, I can. All right. Give me one second here. Recording in progress. Beautiful. You would not believe how many podcasts we've done where we get like 25 minutes into the episode and realize we forgot to hit the record Zoom <laughs> button. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> where, luckily, we, yeah, re I can imagine. we record all of our audio separately. So, like, we have, like, the podcast. But it's like we have to make something up for the first, like, 20 minutes of it for the YouTube video and stuff like that. It's always a disaster. So, yeah. this guy always does. Yeah, I noticed that that. You know, this this function of just having automatically start the recording yes. certain platforms, they don't have that, but I would love to have it. So it just starts the recording automatically without you yeah. having to actually push we, it. We've looked it up so many times for Zoom on if there's a way to just have it auto record, but like I just don't think they have it as an option, which is just ridiculous. So yeah. <laughs> if you're very listening, true, Zoom, get it together for us. <laughs> <laughs> true. Awesome. Well, uh, so nice to meet you. Uh, I'm David. This is Josh. Um, hey, Josh. Hi. We, uh, we're really looking forward to this. So uh, I got connected yeah. with you through a friend of mine who has a dog training business up in Canada who's been following your stuff. And over the last, I don't know, maybe a couple months or so, we've done a few episodes where we kind of you know, we started talking about this concept of like emotions with dogs and how a lot of trainers view them, a lot of how the owners view them and stuff like that. And it's funny, I was listening to your podcast you did with the canine uh, paradigm uh, this morning, and they said the same thing I was going to say at the beginning, which is like us dog trainers sometimes are very good at just using bro science with stuff. Where <laughs> Where we we link together, obviously, a lot of concepts that it's like this, this, this logically, I feel like yeah. makes sense, right? And like, based on our observations and like anecdotal data we have on things like it makes sense, but we don't actually know a lot of the nuances behind a lot of it. So um, I think it's, uh, it's really awesome that you're in this unique position, obviously, as a neuroscientist, where you're also working with dogs, and you've been able to kind of correlate and link a lot of these different things together and kind of can explain things in a little bit more complex of a manner for us and stuff. So I think it'll make some really awesome conversation. And past that, like, as I've been binging your content over the last couple of days, I just have like, a gazillion different like directions I feel like we could go with this conversation. <laughs> so I'm just really looking forward to it. So thanks. Yeah, uh, for, same. For thanks for having on. me. So um, why don't you go ahead and just kind of give us a little bit of a background on yourself? Um, obviously, uh, I know you're, you know, training dogs right now. I know mm -hmm. you obviously have a PhD, I believe in uh, what is it neurobiology or neuroscience? Uh, it's it's natural sciences. <laughs> uh, the way it works in Germany is a little bit different. So you kind of you, know, you kind of pick a topic. So I was doing my PhD at the Institute for Tropical Medicine. Okay. And you kind of get then into all kinds of field because they make you do that. Um, and then and then after I graduated, and it says natural sciences on my diploma, whatever, um, at Columbia University, that's where it became more movement into neuroscience itself because I was working with the gut brain axis. Got it. And then I made the jump off of the, the academic world. 
Very cool. Yeah, so uh, I'm just really interested to hear how kind of the the progression of you taking that knowledge and applying it to dog training kind of came about. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's I didn't plan for it. I really didn't. <laughs> it wasn't really that I was like, oh, this is this is missing in the dog training world because when I got my when I started um, pivoting away from academia and then kind of wondering what I'm going to do with my life, uh, it just I, I did have the experience when I um, volunteered in Thailand where there was a tuberculosis lab, so nothing to do with dogs, but there were a lot of uh, street dogs hanging out. Sure. And there was this weird combination of, hey, I'm coming to this lab and I want to help you guys optimize your lab processes so you can help more migrants not die from tuberculosis. And what I thought I'm coming for was definitely not what they had me do or what they actually needed. Mm. So that's where it dawned on me that, you know, what's happening behind these big lab walls at these Ivy League schools, what's happening in the field, like vastly different and such a huge disconnect, not just in dog training but or in canine science, but really probably in a lot of different fields. And at the same time, it's like, yeah, you know, when I started studying biology, it's like I love animals and I always had a cat and like the whole stuff. And then there were these street dogs and like, let's see what they do. And they came after me <laughs> and I was like running away from them on my bike. I was like, damn it, I don't know anything about these dogs here yeah. living on the street in Thailand. What am I going to do with this? And there was that half this urge of like that, that sucks. I hate that feeling of. I'm studying all that that thing for like 12 years and then, you know, hands-on wise, I have sure. nothing, no idea. Um, and, and, and and you know, then I got more hands-on at my own dog and blah. And then I got kind of bombarded with this clash and all these questions about how to train a dog. What's the best way of training a dog? And I had these questions for my own dog if I wanted to take it to the next level in terms of training. And then I had to answer these questions myself because I felt like I got lost. I fell down this rabbit hole of online dog training, social media stuff. Yeah. You know, I was like, well, let me see if I can answer these questions myself. Sure. And that's what you said at the beginning. That's how it really came together. It was like puzzling together what I know in terms of theory and neuroscience and just the animal behavior and what do you do and what I see in front of me and what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. And then... I started talking more about this and, you know, five years, six years later, now we're here. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, do you do a lot of like hands-on work with clients and stuff? Um, I still do. Um, I did it the first four years when I really started getting into dog training. Sure. Um, and I was on the board of a uh, rescue organization here in Atlanta. And so I created rehab programs and went in and helped these these dogs to to yeah. well at least the beginning of rehab, evaluating dogs that came in, and then also doing lots of um, in person stuff. And then the pandemic hit, mm-hmm. and I kind of pivoted a little bit and put more educational stuff together, which sure. is now mostly online. So I have this mix of my online programs, but also. Um, going for in-person seminars. So that's happening yeah. also. And then here and there, if I have time and if I have open spots, I do some in person too. Yeah. Very cool. The, um, the rescue rehab world, like working in <laughs> that is a really, really interesting space because obviously you're dealing with these animals in such a 
a, a complex uh, and counter counterproductive environment. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about how you how you kind of worked through some of that and, you know, how you kind of came up with plans to help these dogs like while they were still in the shelters and then how you kind of saw that transition as they were getting homed. Uh, yeah, it's, it's messy work and it's not as fulfilling as a lot of people make it sound like that you see this beautiful transformations because sure. oftentimes you honestly don't see these beautiful transformations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, after they get adopted, I oftentimes also lost touch with how they're really doing. Yeah. Um, I think my work, my biggest work came into making the staff that works day to day with these dogs um, and potential adopters aware that what you see is not necessarily what you get. Yeah. Mostly in the context of you see this really skittish, anxious, aggressive dog. It doesn't mean it is a skittish, anxious, aggressive dog. You just got to put some work into helping. But it could also be the other way around. You see this really shy, cute dog. <laughs> Give this dog a little more confidence and too much freedom. And it might actually become a little more of a pushy dog and problematic dog. So um, what we, what I did was less of like this classic obedience training sure. with these dogs and really just get them out of their shell, see what they're motivated by, what kind of behaviors is sporadic or stress-driven, what's the true personality, and then kind of help the staff understand that themselves and yeah. see it themselves and then communicate it to the adopters and help also understand these are good adopters or these are suitable homes and these are not suitable homes. Mm. And there is some sort of, you know, breed bias, especially here in the South. Yeah. Um, we mostly, there was basically all pits, pit mixes, uh, here and there, shepherd or Bergeman or even powerful dogs, right? Mm -hmm. And then you come in with like two little kids and a family because they want to do a good thing. And like saying no to something like that seems so not right because you want to give this dog a new home. But at the same time, you gotta, you gotta look like big picture here, right? Where's this dog going to end up? if you don't know how this dog is going to behave in certain environments. So this kind of stuff was happening basically. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think, um, you know, we we have a couple of different shelters that we work pretty regularly with here that all send dogs to training with us, or we'll do, you know, in-person stuff where we go to the shelter and, you know, assess some of the dogs they have and stuff. And the ones that I've noticed that have made the biggest impacts of things have been the ones that have had some sort of kind of on staff training or you know behavior specialist or something like that that could spend some time not doing just obedience training and stuff with the dogs because that's a big point i had on here is is your opinions on the difference between training from the you know original sense of like obedience commands and sit down stay and all of those types of things and then behavior which i view those two things as very very different obviously uh, but sometimes i feel like they get meshed into one where you get problem behavior cases and it's like well just put them through an obedience program right and, <laughs> and make them more obedient and stuff where it's just it's it's much much deeper than that in a lot of cases i feel like you can get a very obedient but still extremely dangerous or anxious or aggressive dog you know Mm -hmm. um but they put a lot of emphasis into just understanding the individual dogs and if they're seeing problem behaviors why they might be exhibiting those things and how a lot of the things that the volunteers uh or the workers at the shelter might be doing to contribute to the problem because they don't understand what they're doing and the messages they're sending to the dogs and all of those types of things you know mm-hmm. um 
So that's that's really cool. So yeah, I mean, as far as the you know the differences between training and behavior, like how do you view those two things as different in your work? Ah, uh, so everything you do, everything you do with your dog is teaching your dog something. The dog is learning, and we 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 think that training is kind of this encapsulated moment where we teach our dogs how to behave a certain way. But behavior is what they learn every single day. So I don't I don't like this differentiation because it's behavior that you that the dog learns. Either that's the behavior you want or you don't want. But the dog is learning something, right? Sure. All the time. And you know, obedience, yes, you have like a certain process that you go through um, versus all these 23 hours of the day where you don't actively or not consciously interact with your dog. Sure. And that's the behavior that you see and then that's the behavior you get that you want or don't want. And then you start the formal obedience to stop the, the first behavior that the dog learned along the way. So I think just the understanding of what, what, what it means to train a dog, that it doesn't mean, you know, to have 5,000 different obedience commands, which is fine. You should do that regardless, right? I mean, the dog wants to have this kind of mental stimulation. But the actual behavior that most uh, most people want in their pet dogs, you know, polite greeting, not pulling on the leash, all these things, you don't necessarily need formal obedience training, at least not in the first phase of learning. Yep. You just need to have certain way of being consistent, make it a win-win situation for the dog, manage what you don't want, show what you want, and you don't really need any formal obedience for that. And that's just how dogs learn, right? So everything... Life is really, or learning is really putting life into context. And a dog is doing this all day long, yeah. whether you want it or not. So mm. for me, again, behavior is what I'm more interested in, but it's still training because sure. even if I don't train, it's still kind of doing something, right? Yeah, yeah. I understand what you're saying completely. Yeah, I, I suppose then, yeah, like obedience and behavior might be the two mm. differentiations yeah. that, that I would yeah. make with that. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think, you know, with the obedience stuff, I see, you know, with a lot of trainers and stuff that they use obedience a lot to, you know, to try to solve these problems without realizing it's almost managing it is the way that I view it. You know, like you said, you're using an obedience command to stop a dog from rehearsing A, B, C or D thing without addressing, you know, why that dog might be doing that in the first place. So when you don't use the obedience to manage it, they go right back to rehearsing that behavior is kind of the way I've always viewed it, you know. Yeah, I agree. It, it depends, obviously, what exactly, you know, obedience can be very, very powerful. Sure. And I love that dogs can learn all these different things and can really, you know, keep you on your toes, too. What you do with that is, is probably a better question to ask, because for pet dogs in particular, if you think about what kind of obedience we want, it's usually to stop the behavior we don't want, yes. right? Leave it, drop it, come, place, stay, wait, yeah. sit. You know, we don't teach any of these these commands because we think the dog is having fun doing it. We do this because we don't want our dogs sure. to do this and this and that. So it's always about stopping something, suppressing something, right? What about the obedience that you can teach to make your dog want the new behavior do even more, right? So the look command is something that, you know, I have a hate-love relationship <laughs> with because sure. most of the time it's like, look at me, but like freeze in the moment. I know there are all these dogs that you kind of want to uh, bite their face off in this moment, but look at me. And for the dog, it's like, why? Why in this world would I do that, right? 
But what do you do with this if the dog actually does glance at you or actually learn to look at you for a second? Well, then the big thing happens with the teamwork, right? Then the, if you want to call it reward happens, not just the kibble that you throw, but like the dog actually looked at you to gain something else, which might be something that is competing with the original behavior that you wanted to stop. And that is where the obedience can direct, right? This is where obedience can steer the dog in the better direction. But the true work comes, what do you do then when the dog actually behaves? Not just the classic, here's a piece of food kind of reward, but everything else that the dog actually likes doing, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the look is a tough one with, you know, I would say like a love-hate relationship with it because it's still it's still an obedience command, right? That we're using in order to try to get the dog to stop doing something else, right? But I feel like the reason why I don't like it in certain cases, and this is where I'm interested to hear your opinion, is with a lot of things that we're trying to stop our dog from doing, like let's take dog reactivity, for example, because I think that's a common place people will use the look command. Don't we want to some extent the dog to like look at and investigate the trigger that it is that they're concerned by in that moment? You know, and, and, you know, let's say you wanted the dog to to, to not lunge or, or not react or whatever it may be. Like, we could obviously, you know, address that specific issue whatever way we want to go about doing it. Obviously, there's plenty of ways to, to, to get to that result, obviously. But to say, like, you're really concerned about this specific trigger, don't look at it. Look at me instead. I feel like that's the place I see a lot of people take that command, which I don't, I, I don't feel is is a realistic expectation in the moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's absolutely not. And 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 I think this is where, where most owners kind of skip a step. Um, because certainly there is a time where you can say, look, and the dog looks. But sure. I think at that point that the dog would probably look automatically anyways because you have done all the work beforehand. So yes. you might not even need that word anymore. Yeah, you're but right. But before that, yeah. it's like, you know, again, has no motivation to look at you. So you got to help your dog not look at the, the other dog in the reactivity case, right? You use all these other tools that are not obedience sure. to help your dog. Use movement, use the leash, whatever you have, right? And the look, what does look mean? Look means look at the owner, look at me, right? You need that focus for sure, especially in the very, very first phase of rehab when it comes to reactivity. So the dog has a focus point, which is you, right? So you can prevent behaviors you don't want just by the dog focusing on you and then maybe there are triggers in the in the background right but it fades sure. out give your dog a chance to give your dog the permission to fade out everything else yeah and motivating your dog to focus on you you sure. don't need obedience for that you can layer it in and if it works great right probably at the beginning it doesn't because yeah. most dogs also have never learned to focus on the walker sure the handler outside because how we walk is do whatever you want until a problem happens. Yeah. And then you kind of start the training. Do you look at your look similar to, I've seen in a lot of your posts, <clears throat> excuse me, you reference engagement a lot, obviously, and engagement being a prerequisite for other things. And I know I saw, you know, you uh, did a podcast with Michael Ellis and mm -hmm. Michael Ellis was a very, uh, you know, he was probably my early uh, uh, inspiration in dog training when I first started getting into things. Mm -hmm. And obviously he teaches his prerequisite before doing anything else is going through engagement sessions with the dog, right? And as you teach engagement as an independent skill, once you have that engagement, the learning can then start, right? So is that kind of the way you view 
you know, using look in, you know, in a way of achieving engagement. And it's not so much that the dog is looking at you and making eye contact, but you have, you know, you're, re you're a relevant person in the equation that the dog wants to look to for guidance. Is that kind of how you view it? Or? Yeah, that's exactly it. So I don't, I don't personally don't even use look. Sure. Um, because again, for me, it's not about just sit in front of me and look at me. For Got me, it. it's just focus on me. So I have my other, hey, hey, or whatever. Sure. Um, uh, cues I have. And, um, it's really important to implement that before it matters because whatever you cue it, whether you cue it in or not, the engagement has to be something that triggers a certain emotional state, sure. meaning some activation, right? You cannot expect a dog to stay calm if the dog wants to react. Yeah. But also you don't want your dog, even if your dog could stay calm, you kind of don't want your dog to stay calm. You want to have a certain activation sure. and you want to have the engagement with you. And these two things together make your dog a learning machine. And then you can teach everything you want, really, including ignore the triggers, because then the dog kind of eventually, by default, associates the triggers in the background with something much more important that's happening in the moment with the handler. So the engagement is important. And it has to be dynamic engagement because it automatically puts the dog in the better learning state, which is activation and focus. Can you elaborate on dynamic engagement? What do you mean by that um, specifically? Yeah, be dynamic because the movement is important. So anything that activates a dog, dogs tend to move more so than we do as, as humans. They want to move most of the time and they're stressed. They want to move and they're happy they want to move. So not wanting to or preventing them from moving, that's conflict. So dynamic is, ma, is just saying um, move with your dog. But again, move with your dog so that your dog actually wants to move with you, that your dog wants to stay engaged with you. Don't be a clown. You know, don't be too fast. Don't be too slow. Don't be like we humans would move. Kind of learn how your dog moves and all these things. And there's some other elements that go into it. And that will ultimately, even without any commands, again, without any obedience, will draw your dog in and keep your dog's attention. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, you mentioned a point a minute ago, like speaking about like arousal versus like calmness and how a lot mm -hmm. of people like try to achieve this state of calmness at all times, right? And and they want the dog constantly in this state of being calm and stuff like that, which sure, like, you know, like when I'm hanging out in my house with my dogs, I would like them to be in a, a state of being relatively chill, obviously. But I see it preached from this standpoint that, you know, if the dog is not calm, we don't have the ability to influence their behavior properly or to control them or, or any of those types of things. Um, and I've always seen that as such a such a weird cop out because like I look at getting back to the sports side of things and if you watch like Michael Ellis work his dogs or or Ivan or any of these big name sport dog trainers and stuff like those dogs are not in a state of being calm while they're working but they're still very very focused and they're very very under control because they know how to work them in a state of arousal and be able to kind of manipulate their behavior appropriately that mm -hmm. way, right? And, and I've always looked at needing the dog in a state of calm to keep themselves under control as, like I said, almost almost like a cop out of not knowing how to control the arousal in the first place, you know? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I think there's obviously a huge difference between working dogs and, and pet dogs, also the expectations, um, what they will have to do, the performance and all that. Um, but there's also a huge genetic factor to it, right? Yeah. So one of the big things is if you want to have a calm dog that 
just chills with you at a coffee shop, probably don't want to get a visa. I don't know, on average, right? <laughs> sure. um, wants to to go pacing back and forth. Um, but becoming, no matter what kind of dog you have, getting really comfortable with your dog's arousal yeah. is the number one skill everyone should learn from the very beginning. Um, not shy away from it. Just really master yeah, yeah. how to steer the arousal level of a dog so that it doesn't turn into a super scattered bouncing off the walls kind of behavior because that will happen if you don't learn to become comfortable with that and learn how to steer the dog's movement and focus. But if you can, right, that's that's where really true training can happen or true progress or um anything you want really because then the dog is also in a state of motivated it's like i have this energy tell me what to do with this it's yeah. like okay it's so this and this and this and now calm down yeah it's like okay cool i'm happy yeah i really like how you said being comfortable with your dog's arousal because obviously for every dog that's going to look completely different mm -hmm. right they're all going to have different levels of arousal different things that get them aroused etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm -hmm. um can you can you talk for a minute on like ways that you see people one avoid their dog's arousal right or or not be comfortable with it in the first place and and things they could do to start being comfortable with the arousal if that oh, that's sense. a good question i think i think the biggest the biggest thing that you see probably also just on, on online is um arousal that has either excitement attached to it or aggression. And that's where it gets tricky. Sure. <laughs> um, what happens in the brain is actually very similar. It's just the motivation is a little bit different behind these behaviors. Um, but that's where then the sit comes in and yeah. no and leave it and place and down, right? Because that's where we want them to be the opposite usually. So there's sure. a lot of discomfort with, oh my God, uh, my dog knocked over grandma, right, yeah. out of excitement because he or she loves her. Oh, my God, my dog is going to attack this dog out of what of aggressive behavior. Um, so the fear that we have with it, what the consequences might be, makes us really, really uncomfortable seeing our dogs being that, that aroused. Sure. So our natural instinct is to just put yes. a lid on it, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, stop that. I'm embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of like, it's like, hey. I'm gonna, and this is really something that 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 is tough because you know, humans also judge. We judge each other. Like you're not a good dog owner. You don't yeah. know what you're doing with this dog. I know better than you, right? So you feel embarrassed, and sometimes you kind of have to be with your voice and your emotions that you put in, kind of, you know, be out there to get your dog's attention back. Sure. And if it's outside, and it's like. Hey, Bruno, let's go this way. Yay, you got a good boy. And you run the opposite direction. It might look weird to others. Sure. But it's just what it takes maybe to to handle your dog in those moments. And that, that takes some, some practice and, and uh, boldness. Yeah, definitely. This is where I would say my love-hate relationship with commands like, like place and down and stuff come in, right? Because they are such 
good management skills that we could have, right? Like I always use the example of like, yeah, like when my uh, my grandmother-in-law comes over the house, right? She's, you know, freaking 87 at this point and <laughs> can't have my Malinois running underfoot while she's bringing things in, obviously. Um, so I have to use, you know, certain commands in order to manage him effectively in that moment. But if I'm constantly only ever using those commands to manage him in that moment, it's almost creating this buildup of excitement for when I go to release him, which is going to make him 10 times more energetic, you know? Mm -hmm. And I see that a lot as we use like the, the place command, almost like a slingshot where we put him on it and the dogs are like <laughs> building themselves up, building themselves up, building themselves up. It's like, then we release them and they take mm -hmm. all that energy full bore towards whatever it is we're trying to keep them away from yeah. where it's necessary sometimes, right? There are situations where you have to do that, but I try to coach people through addressing, you know, why is the dog so stimulated when people are coming over in the first place and combating that anticipation as well, right? So if people are coming right in and it's always the 15 minute love fest of the dogs as soon as they come in, obviously they're gonna have that anticipation of all of that happening as soon as they get released off of the place board, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I feel like the management of those types of commands without addressing that side of things is just, it's so counter, it's so counterproductive. And I heard a, I heard a trainer one time use the, 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 I think it probably a created definition on his part, but he talked about, you know, physical restraint and then mental restraint. And I'm really curious mm -hmm. to hear your opinions on this concept of mental <laughs> restraint of using obedience or, you know, some sort of, uh, restraint that's not physical, obviously, uh, in order to keep the dog away from things that they want to get to and that creating tons of frustration and, and stress. Yeah. So I think <clears throat> it's never black and white and, and, you know, staying on your place bed, um, even though you want to come off mm -hmm. and not constantly testing, you know, like, okay, now one pause off and now the other pause off and now my butt wiggles off, you know, yeah. there, you know, the dog is not relaxed, right? It's just waiting for that moment and working through this, um, mental restraint or even physical restraint, um, Working through certain levels of stress is incredibly important. Every dog should have that skill. We are living in like a society where there's constantly restraint. You have to stop at the traffic light. There's a car. There are babies running. Don't go there, right? Don't pick up the, the chicken wing bones. So much normal impulse control has to happen regardless. So if the dog doesn't learn to work through some of the stress and control impulses, just making everything harder. And we're going to have more anxiety, sure. uh, medication, prescription, and all that. So it's, I think it's important, but it takes some time. You have to take the time to teach that to your dog. You can't just expect that to happen, right? The dog, like little bouts of stress and help your dog to work through stress, help your dog to not bounce immediately off the place, but challenge your dog in a way that is safe still, right? And where you are in a good headspace. Then you start doing this also in these these situations. So um, my melano, right, is kind of, very aroused when someone comes in, not out of excitement, just generally hates people sure. <laughs> and especially people coming in. And, you know, like when someone comes in and I let her um, come to the living room, there is no, there is no go on your place bit immediately. That, that's not going to happen. First is like, hey, let's do an engagement training session. Don't worry. There's someone around, but we know how to do this together regardless. And that's the first 30 seconds. And it's like, okay, now go on your place bed. Don't look at, don't worry about this. I'm here next to you. Here's something to do, yeah. you know? So I still help. We still get there. We still do these things, but sure. I don't expect her to do this in the very beginning. 
And the more you kind of set up these moments in training where there is mental restraint or physical restraint, the faster you will get your dog to not freak out, the faster is the the roll down back to to baseline yep. in exciting or stressful situations. Yep, mm. that makes sense. So with your dog, you use the example of like when you bring him into the living room because he does, you said he, 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 is he just apprehensive of new people or just gets too stimulated by them or... Okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's total stranger danger Got it. type of situation. So when you bring him in and you do the engagement session, is the re- it, what is the what is your reasoning for that to not immediately put him into a state of needing to contain all of those emotions, or what's kind of going on there? I want to switch um, her. Uh, I want to switch her emotional state first. Got it's it. kind of like going from ah, you yes. know, who's that to oh, there's a training session. Sure. I know how to do that. And then she's much more willing to also follow, again, the engagement, the focus, sure. right? To actually listen to me, what I have to say in those moments and follow my obedience. If she's really focused and at the end of the leash and bark, 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 and then I say, play, so I'll leave it, right? She's just not, why? again, why would she do that in this moment? But if I say, hey, and it's like, what's up? And it's like, come on, you know, and then we go, I'll go in your place, but it's like, yeah, we've done this a thousand times before. The only difference is there's someone I don't like, but I don't feel so bad about it anymore because mom just had fun with me and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's kind of like the switch that I want to have. I want to work with the arousal, switch the valence of stranger danger to, oh, training is fun. And then I layer in my calmness. Yeah, that makes sense. What are, what are your opinions on, what are your opinions on in a situation like that, utilizing punishment or corrections? Because it sounds like obviously you're you're utilizing those engagement sessions to get the dog refocused on you and training before doing it, right? What are your opinions on making like non-negotiables with some of those types of things? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it does make sense. So, you know, the, the whole topic punishment, it really depends. So with her, it's, it's rather difficult because um, you can't, like it's say a dog is, let's stick with the example of, you know, stranger danger is sure. coming in. Um, all the aggression or the the activation of what's happening in the brain is probably not responding to operant conditioning in that sense. You can't really reinforce it. People sometimes think they do. We can probably also not punish it. So that behavior itself, stopping it, might just put, again, more like a management, but you don't really teach the dog not to do it in that moment. So you- punishment... Are you referring to punishing the the act of the stranger danger right now? Yeah. Got yeah. it. I meant yeah. more so with, let's say, like like non-negotiables as far as like non-compliance of, let's say, the place command in mm-hmm. that moment. So mm-hmm. we didn't have to do the full engagement routine prior to or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> I what I use in particular with, with dogs like her, like scatterbrained also easily right sure instead of thinking it of as a punishment i use the concept of prompting sure. and my prompting is kind of the non-negotiable so i'm yeah. prompting you but it's also very flexible elastic in terms of the intensity of prompting it right yeah and the prompt is my physical cue so usually i have for her a leash tab that i even do like play you know i put that in place sure she knows really well prompting me back back onto mom and then continue play, whatever. 
And that prompting really changes in terms of intensity depending on the environment I'm in. So if I go outside on a walk and there's um, not necessarily anything that is threatening her, but something that is distracting her, but I actually do want to train, I prompt with the leash type. She knows the leash type really well. Um, so I don't want her to feel punished. I want her to feel prompted to the alternative. Sure. But I also want her to understand that this prompt means alternative is happening if you want it on that, right? So that's kind of like the the adding fuel to the fire by prompting to the alternative without having to say stop sure. or without having to punish the non-compliance, if that makes sense. Yeah. Versus like something like a no marker or like a punishment that you use for like obedience and sure. um, really disobeying in these moments is a little bit different there because there it's more like an, um, we know exactly how to move your body and how to obey a command, for example. Um, but you didn't do it in that moment in the training session. I use my no marker or whatnot. Um, that kind of punishment to communicate that was definitely wrong. But in the situation with like, stranger danger, reactivity. I don't see it as this is wrong. I'm just prompting and really making sure I understand the alternative behavior is the better choice in that sense. Sure. So is your engagement that you do kind of the, I know you said you use the leash pressure as the example of the prompt, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. would you hypothetically in that scenario, right, you would bring the dog out, right? And when you wanted to get her engagement on you, you would give your prompt with the leash pressure, which is signaled to mean that, hey, pay attention to mom, we're about to do engagement drills or whatever it may be. Is that kind of your idea of prompting the dog prior to doing whatever your place command or whatever you do after that? Yeah, so I have my verbal, my verbal prompt that usually goes out the window with that, the more the excitement or sure. arousal kicks in. Um, and then I have my follow-up with my physical prompt. So for me, it's always two leash taps. Two yes. leash taps. Tap-tap means prompt. Yep. Turn around. Whatever you do, come here. It's never three. It's never one. It's two. <laughs> sure. It's yeah. really exactly that for as a cue or command almost, if you yes. will. Um, versus, you know, when I lose the use the leash for actually leash pressure when I train other things. So she understands the difference. And then, yeah, then it's like, yay. And then we go into our dynamic engagement. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So... Obviously, in in using that, you're essentially conditioning that the two prompts means good things are coming from you, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously, in order for owners to start doing something like that in the presence of triggers, like you said, there's going to be prerequisites that they have to meet prior to going in that situation, working it not around the triggers, right? Stuff like that. How would you, how do you effectively go about implementing that gradually where, let's say, hypothetically, even those two taps on the leash, right? go out the window, right? Similar to a verbal prompt in that moment. You don't have to continue intensifying those taps until it hits a point where the dog is motivated enough by it. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do so you it's, manage that, I guess, in the house, you know, with your personal dog? Or how did you manage that, I should say? It's it's kind of like the 80-20 rule, right? So you, you never stop, obviously, using it. And 80% of the time, you use it when there is no trigger. Twenty percent of the time, there is a trigger or something that you really needed to work. Got it. Um, and in order for it not to intensify more and more and more, it's just a matter of becoming so reflexive and automatic um, that the dog is much more likely to, without thinking about it, it's like, oh, I feel this, I turn around. I feel this, I turn around. And the other way is like the other reason. Also, the other requirement is why am I turning around? Sure. I'm not going to turn around for piece of food of course yeah. probably um and kind of 
that is really the first starting point to make that engagement such a huge win for the dog. And, you know, sports dog trainers, they really have that down yeah. because they need to, because the dog has to perform such high levels. They need this motivation. Pet dog owners, I think they often lack that skill because they don't feel like they have to unless they have to, but then it's a huge mess, right? Yeah. So making this such a rewarding um, activity become it's it's teamwork you know it's not working against your dog because your sure. dog is doing something you don't want it's still teamwork and you got to be worth someone working with for your dog yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah uh sport dog trainers i i do think because they're always practicing for the big event right which is their trial or whatever it may be that they're running the dog through so many of these drills and conditioning in these uh these kind of reward responses and stuff like that with the dog like it it really is like something that I think a lot of pet dog uh, owners, I should say, can can learn a lot from because a lot of times when pet dog owners go to implement this stuff, it's always in the situation where they desperately need it and there's no practice or preparation leading up to that point, which is where you get yeah. that like butting heads with your dog constantly. It's like, we've yeah. never done this before. Now in the absolute hardest possible place for me to perform this task, you're now <laughs> going to require absolute excellence yeah. of me. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, it's why. I think one of the uh, a big thing too, like you said it way earlier about like Michael Ellis, like these sport dog trainers have these high drive. You know, you you watch the dogs and they're they're wound up, but they're like tentative every point. <laughs> and it's like I I feel like these you know regular people like me, <laughs> um, if they have these high strung dogs, they almost try to. They, they they think that that high strung way is like bad so they they almost kind of are trying to downplay what their dog really is like you were saying like th this is an excited genetic dog and i think the the, the thing that kind of gets uh hairy is when they're trying to use the obedience and and, and the training to kind of almost change their dog instead of working with their dog knowing hey yeah you are high drive and we need to work with that and does that make sense? Like, I feel like yeah. that's what you're kind of yeah, doing yeah. with there. Where it's just like you kind of, you, you, what you have with that dog is going to be high drive. Like it, and you kind of have to work with it instead of sure. smush it down. Yeah. You, you definitely have to understand like what your dog's baseline is with stuff exactly. and not be surprised when they act in a way where <laughs> their baseline is like that. And like I said, like, you yeah. know, commands and stuff are great for, for, for managing, you know, the way that I've always viewed them, obviously, mm -hmm. but you know, the baseline of who the dog is, is still always going to be there, right? Yeah. You're not going to transform them into the, you know, the super calm, chill, golden retriever Malinois, right? Like yeah. that's not, that's not necessarily going to happen. <laughs> and I learned that the hard way with my dog. Like, so, so Vinny, my Malinois, I got him uh, very, very young. I got him like maybe 10 years ago or so to do Mondio ring with, right? And, and I competed with him for a while. And then when my business started taking off, he transitioned to pet dog life, right? Like he is the, the retired pet dog Malinois at this point <laughs> and when I made that switch it was like the amount of butting heads that I did with him was was <laughs> unbelievable because I just wanted him to be like you know my pity or, or whatever who just sleeps all day long and is as calm as can be all the time you know and until I really like accepted a lot of his quirks and a lot of the things that he does and like who he is like like our relationship never got to the place it is now, which now I say I have like my best relationship with him out of all of my dogs. And that's a lot of what I try to do when I'm working with clients is, is first and foremost, get them to accept like who the dog is, right? Which kind of gets to an interesting segue, which is, you know, 
genetic predispositions with dogs and, you know, how much you think, I don't want to say how much you think that impacts training because obviously it impacts it a, a great deal, obviously, but how much flexibility you think there is with helping dogs overcome certain genetic predispositions, like either a lot of fear, right, or a lot of, uh, uh, I don't know, if assertiveness or, or quote-unquote dominance, right, is, is an accurate predisposition that a dog can have, obviously, but, you know, how much flexibility you think there is as far as dogs overcoming some of those types of things? That's a good question. Um, there's certainly some flexibility, uh, but again, you're not going to uh, flip the script completely on who the dog is and the personality. Um, you might get a good handle, uh, uh, hang of it, and you might get to a point where there are no problems whatsoever with whatever behavior, but it obviously takes a lot of work and vigilance and for some dogs, you know, if you take your your eyes off or you you go on a vacation and the dog is in the boarding boards uh, boarding school um, or doggy daycare for we comes back completely like it was before in your five years of training are back <laughs> um, because they kind of just fall back into certain behaviors very very quickly. Yeah. Um, but it also again depends a lot on what kind of breed and you know what is the behavior very much associated with who the dog is. So if it's a dog, it's a hunting dog and there's a lot of digging involved and there's a lot of, you know, sniffing and you can't have and pulling on the leash, you know, they'll probably very likely fall back to baseline if you um, stop being consistent with, you know, your your management or stop being consistent with how you handle the dog. Um, something that is for Bagel, uh, for Bagel, sorry. I know uh, a Beagle whose name is Bagel, so... <laughs> Oh, that's Beagle. hilarious. Yeah. Beagle, Beagle. So um for Beagle, you know, is like just very vocal and loves barking. Yes. Right? He can probably uh certainly teach the quiet command, but you know, if left alone for a week and given all the choices, yes. the dog is probably gonna wanting to bark again and hear his or her yeah. own voice. Yeah. Um so how much is this really aligned with the genetics and the functional genetics, if you will? Um, these kind of behaviors are probably a little harder, other behaviors. Um, if it's if it's fearfulness, skittishness, I think unless it's just nervousness that comes also with a very active dog, I think that you have a lot more chance to actually get to a point where the dog's just confident and doesn't react as much anymore. Yes. Um yep. or be as anxious anymore. And and that's probably takes also some time, but you're less likely to fall back into it once the dog realizes like, hey, I'm actually cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the the fearfulness one is interesting. So, yeah, why do you feel that particular, you know, we call it genetic quirk that a dog has is, you know, like you said, easier to long-term overcome for them? If I understood what you just said correctly. Yeah, so it's it's you know, when we think about fearfulness or or anxiousness or especially from from starting as a puppy, you start out you we as humans, you know, our first emotions is anxiety, uh in terms of what's happening, uncertainty, and the same for, for puppies. And um, what's really happening is in, the, because everything is new at the beginning, there are two types of dogs, right? And I, ha I have happened to have both of them, right? So Anya sure. is like, everything is new by default, threat, right? Yes. And then my German Shepherd, everything is new by default, great. <laughs> I want to explore more, yes. right? 
So the behavior attached to it is very different. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the genetic predisposition that you see in different types of puppies at the beginning. Yeah. But even if everything at the beginning is a threat, this fork in the decision-making of what behavior to follow, that fork is not as dominant anymore as the dog learns that it's not a threat, it's not a threat, it's not a threat. It's just a classic yes. kind of habituation. Yes. It has to happen at the pace that works for the dog because the dog has to be able to make the right decision. But if the dog makes the right decision because you set it up that way that the dog learns not a threat, not a threat, not a threat, that initial fork decision-making of, oh, something is new, am I going to be threatened or is it safe? Because you have these thousands, hundreds of repetitions where it wasn't a threat, then it's just classic uh, conditioning yes. where the dog isn't that fearful anymore to new environments or to new things, right? Yeah. That that you have a lot of control over. You just got to do it the right way. Yeah. Yeah. In one of your posts that I saw earlier, you, you mentioned one of the big keys for success being um, the ability to act, the ability to control your environment. And I think there was one other thing also, but you know, with the fearful dogs, I think yeah, I've seen a lot of dogs be able to massively overcome that, you know, habituation of like something's new, it's a threat, something new, it's a threat, right? Which I, I like how you, uh, I like how you articulated that, obviously. But by controlling and ensuring that every single time they get a new situation, that it never is actually a threat, yeah, the the generalization and, and reconditioning of that, I feel like can just massively compound on itself. But like, this, it feels like the second you don't adequately control that and there is a situation that is a threat in that moment, they just totally derail again. You know what I mean? Which is why I would I would say, you know, like, can they really hit a point where it's like they get reconditioned so well that they could, that, that those things don't impact them as much? Does that make sense? So you're, you're basically, so you're saying you did all the work, you did it right. Yes. And then, then they have a bad situation. Right. Like, and then bad situation. Yeah. Does that totally then derail them if all of our environmental control stops? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. does the dog ever actually change or did we just long term really, really manage them well? Really, really manage the environments that they were in well, you know? Yeah, it's a good question. So it's kind of like you do all this work. And maybe you even started out with a fearful reactive dog. You did all this sure. work and you can go now on walks and you pass by other dogs and you can ignore them. And then one day your dog get attacked, actually sure. rushed by an off-leash dog and it turns out into a fight. That's obviously a very traumatic event. Now, is the dog going back to who he was before, which is super anxious, super reactive? Or do you have enough foundational work put in for the dog to overcome and then just continue where you stopped before yes. the attack? Yes. Mm. Um, again, it depends on the personality, but in my experience, there will be a phase after where everything is shit again and everything seems to be back to where <laughs> it was before. Sure, yeah. But it will flip very quickly yeah. to the point where the dog is okay. Yeah, I think I'm good again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm? They'll overcome it faster, is what you're saying, than the right. first time. Yeah, yeah, I think I overcome it faster. If you do not have all that stuff put in place, yeah. I think then it's just, oh, I knew it. Yeah. It's not worth <laughs> not being afraid. Yeah. There's something going to happen. Couldn't rely on whatever I have. 
And, you know, and this is the same, this trauma response in general is kind of like, is that there is kind of like an aftermath where everything, vigilance, cortisol, stress, everything stays higher. Yeah. And it's not just for a couple hours, it can be for weeks. And that's very natural of the fear response because the fear response has to make sure you're not going to be in the same situation again. So the fear response kind of stays active in that sense, saying, don't go back there. Don't do the same mistakes again. You are like close to dying. Yeah. So you have to wait for that to come down and then you kind of expose your dog again and kind of like, see, wasn't yeah. as bad. If the fear response is still high and you kind of immediately go back to expect everything to be normal, the dog will be, you know, we call it the, the trigger stacking that can last for weeks because the everything is still active, even even the aggressiveness potentially, yeah. the rage is still active. So you kind of have to wait for that a little bit to, to flatten out. And then you kind of just, your own anxiety also has to be, yes. you got to be chill again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. then you go your way. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, like, you know, when we'll have clients that say they had like a major setback with things or an incident or whatever it may be, the, the hardest thing I feel like for owners is to move forward from it and not completely change their outlook on the entire situation, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And I feel like, and this is where I'm interested to hear, hear your take on it as well. A lot of times, like let's say, you know, a client has a dog that's a little bit fearful and they go for walks every day and, and you know, it's, it's always fine. It's great. Everybody's happy. And then one day they get like rushed by an off-leash dog or something, right? Mm-hmm. And it feels like a major setback. And then the next week, right, every time the owner goes out for a walk, they are anticipating the off-leash dog coming out and rushing. So they're mm. constantly doing different things with the dog and they're tensing up on their leash more where they yeah. never used to do it before. And they're essentially triggering the dog in that moment to kind of feel like, hey, something bad is about to happen where a lot of those same dogs, I feel like, and this is my bro science coming out, if you go right back to your walks like nothing ever happened, so many of them just go right, they fall right back into their routines like it's not a problem. So I'm interested to hear your take on what might be going on in the dog's head in those situations if it's something different than that, you know? Uh, you mean what's going on if the owner continues to be anxious? Yeah, so, so how, how the owner's behavior, or hold on, let me rephrase this. If the owner's behavior in that moment plays almost more a role in the dog's behavior moving forward after that incident. Um, I think it's 50-50. So the owner is just like another, is obviously at the end of the leash, but it's just another component of the entire context, what it means to be on the walk. Sure. And if anything is off, and obviously the relationship with the owner is the most important one in that context, um, if anything is off, if um, even the gate door of that dog rushing out is now always open, even though it was closed before. Sure. Anything changed, the dog will pick that up. Yeah. Right? And it's the closest to pick up anything that changed in the behavior of the, of the owner. right? And that will make the dog even more suspicious. Dogs are very, very detail-oriented. They pick up, some dogs not as much as others, but they pick up on details very, very quickly and easily that we don't even see. Mm-hmm. And these details mean your breathing, right? You walk a little faster, um, when at the beginning, when um, my Melania, when, when when she was younger, and she would react to every person walking outside, she just you know, there's a person, I don't know, uh, I'm gonna just in case, 
make myself heard, right? And um, my husband, when he would walk her, as soon as he saw a person, he would speed up. Sure. Everything would be loose. He would have the leash loose. He would continue in the normal voice, but mm -hmm. he would speed up a little bit. Yeah. And I'm like, I didn't know that. And I was like, why is she not, why is she still doing this? Like, I'm doing all this work, you know, yeah. <laughs> and he do, yeah. takes a for walk. And then I, we walked together and then I realized he's speeding up. He's just slightly speeding up. And he wasn't really aware of this either because he just wanted to get out of the situation quickly. But that became a cue for, uh-oh, something is around. So she became even more vigilant and was seeking out the threat, which is the classic definition of anxiety, right? You, you're expecting, anticipate stress, anticipate a threat. So now kind of like forcing yourself to stay calm and, 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 you know, start talking to your dog as if something really great is happening can help yourself calm down too. And that makes such a big deal out of it so that your dog gets actually a chance to overcome that. So, but again, that could be even, I don't know, Anything else in the environment that is off yeah. that can that can that can make the dog more vigilant. You just as the handler probably the one who has the most cues yeah. of normal versus not normal. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And does it not so much matter what the cue is as far as you just want to reverse whatever the negative one is? Like so you use the example of obviously with your husband, him speeding up on the walk, obviously, and that became a cue for her to start being hypervigilant of like, wait, something might be happening right now, right? Because it consistently was happening when there were probably threats around, right? Where if you flip that and use the example of talking to your dog and, you know, in a in a, a positive way or, or, or something along those lines, um, just, just because of the sheer fact that it's something new that isn't conditioned into all of those other things can help break the pattern. Is that kind of the idea? Is you create um, change? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. So uh, generally, and because ideally, you just want it to be as normal as possible. Yes. Whatever you did before, continue doing it, right? Yeah. What triggers dogs is the contrast moment, right? Yes. Something that was not there before Got is it. now there. Yes. Technically, that could be even your voice, you starting to talk to your dog sweetly. If you never talk to your yeah, dog yeah. more, yes. right? That could be... Because we see that as a big trigger a lot as well, right? As, as people, you know, they, they start getting nervous and they start talking to the dog, like, hey, don't worry, it's a dog. It's, okay. <laughs> it's like, it's going to be okay, yeah. right? And that becomes then the negative pattern that conditions the dog. The second they start talking to them, it's like, boom, I'm ready to start freaking exploding. Yeah. Oh, shit, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the, it's really the con. It's not, it doesn't really matter um, what the cue is. It's really the contrast that dogs pick up on. Sure. And mm -hmm. If it's contrast, though, and, you know, when I talk, when we talked about the dynamic engagement and the yes. focus cue and all these things, I do that all the time, even yes. if there's no one around, even sure, if sure, there's sure. not a dog around, right? That's what we meant when we said, put that in place before, make yes. this a normal thing on walks, if yeah. reactivity is a thing. Um, so that it doesn't become, oh, we only do this when there's something. Well, now today I'm going to decide to react and not engage with you. Yeah. And then you start yeah. prompting more or correcting or leave it or no, and you get frustrated. And then you say, this doesn't work, right? But it's the learning how dogs learn and we need to understand a little bit more. Like everything has to be 80% of the time as it is normal doing this. This is my picture of when I go on a walk, any moment I could get redirected on my owner we can have some fun, then we continue walking. Mm. Any moment. Oh, there's a trigger? Well, I'm still falling into something that I know really well. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Uh, okay, so 
this will kind of, I mean, we're, we're kind of slowly segueing into the, the, like the, the real conversation with like a lot of the emotions and stuff. So one thing I feel like we as dog trainers say all the time is dogs live really, dogs live in the moment and don't dwell on the past. I would say that's something I hear so many dog trainers say, and I'm looking to, to hear you, I guess, debunk that if that's not totally accurate. <laughs> 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 or get your opinion on that phrase just in general, I guess. It's a good one. <sighs> um, it depends on what we would mean by dwelling in the past. Sure. Because dogs don't dwell in the past as humans do, but they also don't look into the future as, as humans do. Yeah, right? so they that right there, what you just said, that's what I'm looking to hear more about. Because that's that's the thing that I think throws off like owners and trainers <laughs> yeah. and everybody is exactly how you just said that right there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, in terms of in terms of learning, right? As I said before, it's putting life into context. And the brain, every brain, and really two main functions. Yeah. It's maintaining all your bodily functions, so you breathe, your heart beats, whatever it is. Yes. Um, and predicting what's happening next for maximum survival. Mm -hmm. So that was humans. We can predict, we're trying to predict 10 years, 20 years, man, our entire lives, right? Okay. Then we get anxious. I have to pay a mortgage for 30 years, right? <laughs> what might happen if I can't? Sure. Dogs don't have that capacity. Their brain still predicts what might happen any given moment. And that might be cued in contextual cues, wherever environment they're in, mom is coming home, I'm going to get a treat, leash is clipping on, I'm gonna go, going to react. Right. So there's a chain of cues that the brain uses to predict what might happen next. Mm. Now, if you had to ask me how many minutes and, sure. and you know, yeah, advance, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But <clears throat> it's not necessarily in the moment because prediction per se, by definition, means not being in the moment. But what's next? Yes. Um, it's just not as complex and elaborate as it is for for humans, right? Yeah. And that's the brain, and that's what determines the behavior. Yes. The cues put the dog into a certain state of mind, emotional state, if you will, and that determines the behavior. And it's all because of the cues that kind of the dog learned to interpret yeah. what's happening. Is that is that due to like actual like differences in the brain or is that due to so you know you were explaining a lot of different things humans will dwell on in the future the freaking mortgage is my girlfriend gonna leave me is you know like like ten thousand different examples of things that can happen is that because our brain is that much different than theirs as far as our capacity to do that or is that because like the society our species lives in just has so much more stuff going on in it does that make sense no, it's, it's absolutely the capacity is the brain functions itself. So, so if you were to compare a, a human brain and, and a dog brain, for one, the size yeah. is much bigger. But what really matters is the size of the area, prefrontal cortex, the folds, the, that yes. what we think of a brain, the folding mass, mm. um, that is much more complex and much more developed in humans, which allow us to have these complex thoughts, yeah. develop AI, this kind of stuff. It's a lot flatter, smooth, the surface, and smaller in dogs. So they can't have these, we call this sometimes executive functions, as complex as, um, as we humans do. All the other stuff that is very instinctive, fight or flight response, these kind of things are very preserved. Yes, the size also differ, differs a little bit, 
but the capacity of running when you when you feel threatened is the same. We kind of act almost the same when we feel threatened. Um, you know, we, we start a fight, potentially we run away, same as dogs do or any other animals, right? So these really instinctive behaviors, they're very much um, preserved or conserved between species. Okay, that makes sense. So... So is it the is it the complexion in which they're able to like predict things in the future, or is it more of a time thing? I know you said obviously you don't know exact times and stuff like that, which isn't what I'm asking. But are we able to to predict and dwell on more things in the future because we could simply predict further into the future? Yeah. So we create. <laughs> this is this is where. Um, you know, all these discussions happen. We create realities that are not real yet, but we think they are real, right? Because okay. we have the capacity yeah, yeah. of imagining something that someone said and I interpreting understand. it it's never happened. I understand. And dogs don't do that, right? Yeah. They just like, what's there? Yeah. And what does that mean for my survival or my benefits? Do I gain anything from it or yeah. do I need to avoid it? And they can only do what they basically have learned. Right. So there's like these two processes. What have I learned in terms of repetitions, reinforcement mm -hmm. based on the cues? And what am I sensing right now? What I'm seeing, hearing, tasting, feeling, all these things. And that's can change any given moment. Right. Yes. But for humans, right, we take this with us. We do wherever we want, worry about things that are not even there. Yes, that makes mm. that makes a lot of sense when you described it as like we could literally craft a scenario that has never ever happened before yeah. and and make that something new that we will then dwell on, right? And and, yeah. and have this yeah. false reality of 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 something that might happen that that is we've never experienced before in our lives where dogs do not have the ability to to dwell that 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 much on that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So what about, or if they do, we don't know. You know, I mean, uh, if true. they do, we don't know. It's very yeah, that's true. Yeah, and that was the, that's kind of the tough thing about this is as we've been discussing it over the last few like podcasts, like I've tried to like do some independent research on just little things like a lot of people talk about how, you know, like do dogs love us or not love us, which is another one that I'm very interested to hear your opinion on, obviously. Um, or, you know, a lot of people use the example of like my dog knows when I'm sick and wants to console me when I'm sick and like those types of things. And I tried to like look into like what sorts of actual studies have been done to prove one way or another. And all of them kind of keep coming back to like, we don't really know. <laughs> You know, like, like, okay, yeah, like, you know, like the loved one, for example, like there's obvious signs that with an owner, right, like dogs have a much more positive association with that individual than they will with other people, right? But like, then you get into like this deep complex, like what is love in the first place? And does that emotion equate to it? Like, is it the exact same thing with, with humans and with dogs and all of that kind of stuff? Um, and, and. It, it just it's just always very gray and it's almost like the further down the rabbit hole you get like the more confusing it kind of gets you know <laughs> yeah so, so so i guess i'm I'm curious on that one then like so as far as like dogs loving you know people or, or, or those types of situations like what's your what's your take on some of that you know it's this 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 these kind of discussions around <laughs> feelings or emotions yeah. is <clears throat> Not that I try to avoid it, sure. but I don't have satisfying, like you said, there is just no satisfying answer to it. Yeah. But I feel like we humans, especially pet owners, not necessarily um, 
the researchers who conduct these studies, but they might be motivated by, by what the public is interested in. Sure. It's like yeah, we yeah. want our dogs to love us yeah, yeah. and and do everything for us and, and take a bullet for us or be very sad when we leave. And it makes you me really wonder why? Why is that? Right? Because again, you're creating realities yeah, sure. here. Mm-hmm. Something on docks that might not even be there, but it's so powerful because I think we kind of want to fill our own needs in terms of how we want the relationship to be yes. with the dog. Now, if there was a study that would say it, your dog doesn't care about you at all, I don't think you would accept it. I think there would be such an outrage. Everyone would say, no, it's impossible. I yeah. see it every single day. Uh-huh. So, but what really it comes down to feelings and feelings are not necessarily the same as emotions and feelings are very subjective. Ah, that's it. And unless, that. yeah. unless our dogs can actually tell us in the language that we understand uh-huh. without any ambiguity that they feel love and sadness, we will never know. Uh-huh. And that's just it. No study in this world will be able to confirm it because the only thing we have left to extrapolate any kind of feelings is by looking at the behavior. Yes. And that gets very dangerous. Very subjective. <laughs> very subjective. Yeah. And one behavior can look emotional, but yes. might be automatic. Yeah. One behavior could look like they love us, right? The yeah. classic, I'm rolling on my back, but actually want you to leave alone. So the interpretations are like just not accurate. Yeah. How do you look at feelings and emotions as different? Like what is, how do you, how do you define the differences between the two? So emotions, um, I see this, and this is coming from from other researchers that have kind of neuroscientists kind of facing the same things. Like sure. I want to know if 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 animals have emotions without having to rely on subjective feelings or the de- definition of subjective feelings, and especially in the field of neuroscience, it ultimately comes down to an emotion is kind of a brain state with all the activations and and hormones and neurotransmitters, right? Lots of things at this very moment are going on that kind of define an emotional state and that influences the behavior. So instead of feeling, which is an introspective kind of consciousness of when you, for example, hunger versus feeling hungry, right? Sure. Like I, I know I'm hungry because I have this consciousness of my, body signals and I need to eat so I feel hungry or yeah. feel loved or feel sad it's you know this consciousness of it sure do animals have this consciousness I don't know sure, so sure, sure, really- sure. okay so the feelings are really just <clears throat> the subjective it's kind of like looking into your brain yeah 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 and I feel hungry versus the emotion is what's actually that particular state yeah that's happening right now that determines behavior yeah yeah so the so the correct me if I'm wrong but the feelings then would be the the obviously your interpretation of how you're feeling right so correct. it's whatever you craft as far as like this is what this means which is where we really got the down the rabbit hole with things where we started talking then about human emotions and I was like <laughs> do we really like like like, have we almost overcomplicated emotions and feelings for ourselves a little too much because of our ability to reason and craft these, uh, you know, futures or, or whatever, <laughs> whatever it may be, like so intensely yeah. that we've we've overcomplicated them past just the basic primal, you know, way that you would assume the animals kind of kind of learn them. And then does that get to you know the the kind of secondary part, which is the the 
the difference between human and dog feelings or emotions, right? We'll just say emotions, obviously, and why we're not able to truly understand each other's emotions. Does that make sense? Because mm -hmm. we've overcomplicated them for ourselves, right? Where dogs obviously have not done that, or we don't know if they have done that, but we don't necessarily think that they have. So when we try to put a lot of these kind of complex human emotions and feelings on the dog, the dog doesn't know what to make of that. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we, we barely can figure out our own <laughs> brain, how yeah. it works, yeah. right? Like a, a lot of things we take from human psychology and then we try to plot it on a lot of other species, including dogs, because they kind of share lives with sure. us, right? And like this, this, you know, we all heard of it. It's like someone who, I don't know goes to therapy because it's like angry i feel angry it's like no you're not angry you're really just hurt you know mm. this becomes so complex like why you're hurt or because you're actually and it goes on and on and on right and we just talk about it but if that's kind of like the subjectivity of these feelings and kind of communicate and understand it and misunderstanding it um but because that's the only way how, how we relate to each other yes. most of the time more so how we feel rather than actual logic. <laughs> That's yeah, how we want yeah, yeah. our dogs to feel too. And it's not so much that we do this on purpose because we desperately need a dog um, to love us. It's sure. more like, oh, this is what love looks like because of my own subjective feelings yes. and what I've experienced, right? Yeah, yeah. And for do dogs, it's kind of, I guess it is rooted and has some level of misunderstandings, but it's really... Um, you know, my dog, a dog comes over and licks the lips, right? Yeah. And then a human might be like, oh, my dog loves me so much. <laughs> Versus you just had a peanut butter bread and your dog really just licking the peanut butter off your lips, yeah. right? <laughs> and the next day is like, oh, that's how we show love. And I go and then do the same with my dog and I lean in and my dog is like totally freaked out in that moment because taking a nap and then bites my lip. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. like my dog hates me now. It's like such a betrayal. Right. And again, it's all driven by these feelings we have towards each other. And mm -hmm. I feel like there's no trust between any us anymore. And the dog is like, I was just being a dog yeah. the entire time. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. So we can kind of withdraw, like remove that kind of how we try to relate to our dogs, it's not so much on, on feelings and more so on what we observe, but also kind of just not putting this this blueprint of feelings onto them. Yeah, I think we will have less of a misunderstanding. Yeah, and get a little bit closer to to really understanding what the species dog really is. Right, there's more and more research done now, but there's a really powerful movement of these concepts of human psychology, feelings, giving consent. You know, it's a huge topic that we put on our dogs. And I feel like we're taking away space to really learn who dogs really are and how we can best make this really chaotic life that is so stressful at times um, the, the best possible experience for both of us, yeah. meaning both species. I like that. Now, the way I feel like I personally try to weed through some of the, 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 whatever the cloud of, of BS, if you want to call it or whatever it is, when you get into these like emotional conversations and stuff with dogs is I really try to just, just pragmatically look at, 
like the behavior that we're exhibiting or we're seeing, right? And that we're trying to make sense of and try to just use the most basic of logic to to ask myself, like, why might the dog be doing this thing or not doing this thing? Like you use the example of the dog comes up and gives him kisses and it's like, oh my God, like he's giving kisses. He loves you. But in your case, you're like, no, you literally just ate peanut butter and the dog likes <laughs> peanut butter. So obviously wants to lick your mouth in that moment, right? Yeah. Can we get too far down that rabbit hole though, where we simply look at things, you know, like where we try to find a practical reason why the dog might be doing a certain thing, but we're missing underlying emotional things. Oh yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think it's still probably safer to go as simple as possible. Sure. If you want to find an explanation, what is the most simple explanation? And you're probably on the right track. Yeah. And yeah, there's so many nuances. Otherwise you wouldn't have, you know, all these, um, all these, these uh, research going on in terms of how does the brain work when there's aggression, right? When yep. there's fear and all these things. Um, but in terms of, you know, what does it mean for you and how you interact with your dog? I don't think we need to make it super complicated because, you know, if you, a dog, it's really just like, okay so now this is where it starts because if i say this am i still gonna say it i'm ready people will be like but it's so more complex <laughs> than this there's so much more that goes into it yeah. yes it's true but you can still there's like this 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 first principles kind of concept withdraw or approach appetitive or aversive yeah. that's the law of nature what yes, were the second so two what were the second two you said there appetitive or aversive what was the what was the first one appetitive you said uh, withdraw or approach got it yeah yeah and then you said a pet was it appetitive is that what you said yeah appetitive yeah. what is that so appetitive is like appetite right you want it understood you go understood yeah. yeah and the opposite is aversive yes and uh um this is just like super research research experiment setup kind of language so we don't really use these terms as much um but you can you can you can really almost every behavior kind of put it down in these two kind of categories. What is the motivation behind it? Why is it appetitive? Why is it aversive? What has the dog learned? What are the genetics? Who is involved? What about the handler? Yes, they all influence that, but at the end of the day, it's still in terms of, you know, what the brain really wants, maximum survival, reproduction. So avoid things that are good for you and go to things that are good for you, right? Yes. And and before we can add all these nuances, which I think are super interesting nuances, where you where you kind of make the difference between an average sport dog and a dog that might be winning competitions, sure. given genetics, the same, right? This is where nuances can really make differences, and it's super interesting. Um, but there, it's hard. It's hard to kind of find out what really matters in terms of how we handle dogs. Yeah. So. This, this is very interesting. So you you used, obviously, those four different things, and you said you basically can take most behaviors and categorize them within, like, a spectrum of all of those. Is that – did I understand that yeah. correctly? Yeah. Okay. So, so this is literally what got me into trouble on the internet as far as all the people in the comments saying, like, no, like, that's wrong, this, that. Probably the same thing, like, you just described of what people do with mm -hmm. you with it. So I created, in my mind – and I'm curious if this is similar or if you think there's a flaw in this. I created a spectrum, right? So like basically a, a chart that was <clears throat> safety and danger and then aroused 
and we'll just say calm. I don't remember what the exact words I used for it, right? Mm -hmm. And I basically said any behavior you see with your dogs can fit on a spectrum of one of those, you know, of those things, right? So, so you know, take a, a, a dog reactivity, for example, with every dog, obviously, you know, different dogs react for different reasons, obviously. But let's say we have a, a dog that's fearful of other dogs and reacting to try to, to gain space, right? That would be an example of an aroused danger, right? You could chart it on that graph that way, right? Or a dog jumping when guests come over the house, right? Because they really like the guests. You know, you could chart that as, you know, aroused safety, right? The person is very safe. They like them. They want to be close to them, but they're also very stimulated in that moment. And I basically was just going through every list of behaviors that people would say, you know, hey, my dog is doing this for some complex reason and plotted it like onto that chart, you know, and and, and I, I use that to basically say, you know, I personally, based on, you know, my, my bro science and logic, feel dogs can only really understand emotions within that spectrum, right? <laughs> so, so I'm curious to hear your opinion on that. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, basically, it's really about the arousal level, and then you give a valence to it, positive or negative, right? So, sure. yes. is sure. the arousal positive or negative? Is the um, is it sleeping because it's positive and feeling safe, safe, or is like knocked out, kind sure. of, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. knock that dog out, kind of thing, right? So that would be negative. So you kind of give a valence on the the scale of arousal in your in your schema. Yes. Um, and I think a while back, I kind of. Well, when I was thinking more about this, I kind of did the same um, exercise as in kind of plot everything that I observe in dogs on that, right? Yeah. And sometimes when it gets complicated, this is the thing, when it gets complicated, it really gets complicated because we don't know exactly what's going on in the dog's brain, but the yeah. outcome is still the same. The outcome is still, is the dog aroused and wants to move, you know, is the dog super calm? It gets complicated when the dog is seemingly calm, freezes up. Right, but is actually aroused mm. because of danger, right? But then you would probably give it a negative valence in that sense, yes. right? Mm. So it still applies to this. Um, in terms of the emotion or with the, in relation to emotions, this is still so the behavior that you see in the emotion is what drives the behavior. So the behavior itself is not the emotion mm. being aroused. Yes, um, I understand. Yeah, the emotion yeah. is leading to increased heartbeat and whatnot sure. or the emotional state if you will and that again is where the complexity comes in but we, we really don't know <laughs> that's the hard part right it's like, there's like yeah. no sound answers <laughs> yeah okay yeah that makes sense that was that so was the, interesting though how the you input, described that yeah yeah it's the input and the output we can observe the output we can guess what the input uh, is yeah. uh -huh. and what the black box in between the emotional state yeah is complex but again there's just so much output different like variation of outputs that you can read yeah, which can yeah. probably fit on your schema you sure. have to have yeah, to go yeah. through more um mental exercises to see if it's true yeah but yeah what's in between you know yeah yeah no that's a that's a good point yeah you still have to kind of reverse engineer that output and figure out like when you ultimately look at what's important which is solving whatever that issue is right uh you still have to kind of reverse engineer it back to its core to fix whatever that root problem is you know yeah. and that's where you know we have to kind of uh be a little bit more complex ourselves as far as trying to figure out that solution so that's interesting yeah. uh okay so you mentioned a minute ago that you know consent right and i did see a post that you made 
where you kind of it sounded like had a, a little bit of a mixed opinion on on consent as far as it not being what we claim it to be sometimes when it comes to dogs. Uh, can you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, I have. I have there are two issues with this. So, um, you know, consent behavior, teaching consent behavior is you find lots of protocols for it and. I don't think anything is wrong with how you teach that dog, right? So you should go through this in terms of um, teach your dog to hold still and when, when, when you know, I trim the nails, nothing bad happens and then you get rewarded and that whole stuff, right? Sure. Um, it becomes problematic when we say the dog is giving consent, what consent really means because consent, again, comes from human psychology and this word has been created because our capability of creating future realities that can allow us to determine whether this is beneficial for us or not, even if we have never encountered that situation in our lives before. And we even put an age limit to it when a person has the maturity to give consent, right? We don't say a 12-year-old can give consent to certain things, right, for a reason, because doesn't understand yes. future mm-hmm. actions as much. Mm-hmm. Now we're taking that kind of consent definition, wanting to put it on dogs, gets very, very difficult because dogs can't do that. You have to go through training. The question is if you have to train a dog to show whether or not the dog is willing to endure the handling or not, is it really consent? Sure. I don't think so. It's yeah, yeah, just yeah. you're manipulating them into it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It's cooperation. Yes. Approaching it or staying away from it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, let's just say it's consent, right? Is it really beneficial to always have our dogs decide whether or not they go through that procedure? Because what I want my dog is being prepared for life, not just for living room life, right? Mm -hmm. Not just for I'm sitting down with her trimming her nails, and if she doesn't want to do it anymore, she just moves away and gets rewarded for it. Yeah. That doesn't that doesn't help situations where she has to go to the vet because maybe she ripped her paw and there's a splinter and they will have to remove it or else it gets infected. Yeah. Now she learned that if she doesn't want to, she just needs to walk away. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like now at the vet. Now it becomes a really traumatic experience because now the dog is like, wait a second. Yeah. Every time I walked away, I was allowed to walk away. Now I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm going to die <laughs> because it's horrible. Yeah, yeah. And now you're actually creating a really traumatic event that can then affect your future training when you want to handle the dog again. Yeah. So I think it's problematic in that sense because teaching a dog to cooperate is a very gradual process. And you go by rewarding and building up to it. And all that training should happen. You know, you don't need to force a dog to sit through something from the very beginning. But there is also an element where, like, we did that. And now you also have to do it a little bit, yeah. just a little bit longer to learn to, to yeah. mental restraint. We talked about this before. Yeah, yeah. Physical restraint. To learn to work through stress so that when you really, really have to, you're not freaking out and have a traumatic experience. Yep, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Do you think that dogs can understand contextual consent? And let me actually first let me start by saying I I actually when I think of the word consent, 
did not think of it from the standpoint of, of how you just described it, which is being able to predict not just if they want something in the moment or not, but is it good for me in the future? Like that, that is, you are, you're obviously that makes complete sense that that is a hundred percent a human thing, right? Like we have the ability to reason into the future, which is why we put an age limit on it, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I guess I've always looked at consent as something more simple than that, which is, do they want this thing in the moment or do they not want this thing in the moment? Mm -hmm. So, so I preface that by saying what I'm about to say, I'm using that kind of definition of, right. Mm -hmm. So, so contextual consent, meaning like, yes, there are numerous things in my day to day with my dogs that are, you know, non-negotiables. We, we got to do them, right? If I need to do your nails, I need to do your nails, right? Yeah. I'll try to make it as pleasant of an experience as possible. You know, going to the vet, I'll try to make it as pleasant of an experience as possible. But some of these things are non-negotiables. You don't have the ability to, to, to give consent for it. You just have to, you just have to do it. Right. But when it comes to my dog's interactions with say my guests, that's one place where I do implement a quote unquote consent policy, right? Like if somebody comes over my house and wants to interact with one of my dogs, they have to use their best judgment on does the dog actually want the interaction in this moment or not. And usually I use just a, a simple protocol of like, casually try to call the dog over to you and, and see like, you know, do they come over or do they say, nah, you're a little weird right now. I don't really want to. And if you see that, like, we're not going to push the envelope. We're just going to leave the dog alone in that moment. Right. Mm. So <laughs> do you think they have the ability to contextually understand that? Or do you think that situations like that create more confusion? No. So that's in that sense. Um, I'm thinking if I would use, contextual consent yeah the, the, i guess the one thing is really just the definition of consent but it's a yes, contextual yeah, sure. consent yeah totally i mean that's just that's almost common sense in yes, that sense okay. mm -hmm. now we're getting all kinds of words <laughs> um if the dog approaches or stays away or avoids the yeah. situation right the dog's brain again this short-term prediction yes. of is it good for me or not mm -hmm. and if it's something novel we talked about this in the context of you know, being anxious in new environments before, yeah. if that person, if something is novel and the amygdala, you know, threat detector says, ah, mm, I'm not so sure, I'm staying away, then I don't think it's it's necessarily not giving consent. It's just saying, I don't want that that kind of interaction. Sure. I don't want to approach that kind of situation. Yes. And then obviously you don't force it, right? Versus... It's not being considered a threat and I'm exploring, I'm open to socially interact. And then, yeah, you could say contextual consent, consent as in saying yes to um, that kind of interaction. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're, so would you say your issue with consent, quote unquote, is more with the, the human definition of it being put on dogs? Like if there was a different word for it, would you say you would, would you have less of a problem with, with it or is it more to the concept that if we're always looking for the quote unquote consent from dogs, you're not preparing them for the inevitables in real world? Uh, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's more like what it, what, what the impacts are on, on humanizing our dogs even more so, right? So yeah, for one, definitely you can't always rely on the dog giving consent. You yep. cannot forget to make your dog work through stress at some point. But also the other, I think one of the comments was, um, wait, so you're never asking your dog for consent before petting your dog. And um, and that's like, 
it's a bridge too far because I don't go to my dog and ask for consent. Like, how does this even look like? Am yeah. I just holding out my hand? Am I actually asking, do you want to be pet by me? No, it's the foundational nonverbal understanding of our relationship yes. that yeah. whether or not, and yes, I sometimes go up to my dog because I want to pet my dog, but I also know <laughs> that the way I pet my dog, the timing, all yeah. that is not going to hurt him. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm never just, and, and sometimes my dog comes up and I don't want, you know, the cuddles right now because I'm busy, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's not that my dog is asking me for consent or something like this, yeah. right? So <laughs> it's this, you're putting some some kind of frameworks onto something that is, again, take it just in the most simple explanation, have such a good nonverbal understanding of who your dog is and the likes and dislikes that you don't have to put frameworks and protocols on yeah, top yeah. of it in order to not make a mistake, yeah. And that's kind of driving us away from, again, what it means to be a dog and a human in the same household and more into almost becomes po po uh, po um, political in that sense. Yeah, 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 for sure. It's it's funny, like what you just said at the end there. It's like, yeah, because if you look at that, it's like, why are we overcomplicating it so much? Like, I know my dog and I know what mm -hmm. my dog likes and doesn't like. So it's like, I just like, I don't even think about it. It's just like my Malinois, like he doesn't like to be picked up. Not that like. I tell people you should be picking up your dogs all the time or anything, but there's times <laughs> with my other dogs that we're hanging out and it's like, let me just scoop you up real quick. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I know he really, really does not like that. Right. Yeah. And if I needed to do it to get him up into something or whatever it may be, like, I know I can do it, but I generally avoid doing it because I know he doesn't like it. Right. <laughs> and I don't have to think so much about it. And I don't look at it as like such a hindrance or anything like that. It's just like, yeah. you know who your dog is. You're getting back to what we talked about earlier, which is we know their baseline of their likes and their dislikes. Mm -hmm. And we can make sure that we kind of exist and create our, you know, craft our relationship around some of that kind of stuff in a way where yeah. it's mutually beneficial for both of us, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I like Yeah. That. It's, it's the combination of, you know, we respect each other. Yeah. And, maybe that gets lost also with all this you have to ask for consent you have to put this protocol and you have to do this and this in order for you sure. to know your dog mm. like take this all away just hang out with your dog look at your dog observe your dog and you get a feel for it right yeah but also have good times together so that when they're bad times you have to pick up your dog like my males like you know, this is probably for her the biggest betrayal ever if I was to pick her up. Yeah, sure. It's like, how dare you? Like, yeah. It's the same. Yeah, right? yeah. But when I have to weigh her, like at home, I have to pick her up, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. But then she knows. I was like, okay, this is happening. I don't like it, but right now it's happening. It happens once every three months. So mm. it's not something that she has to suffer through. But we have that kind of understanding that if something has to happen, it has to happen and yeah. no one is going to die and we're all going to walk away with a healthy relationship regardless, mm. right? Yeah. And uh, um, that part, you know, goes back to the basics and I think we're kind of losing that touch, really that touch. A little yeah, bit. yeah, yeah. I like that. Mm. Um, okay, last one. Uh, <laughs> what would you say as somebody who knows more deeply about a lot of this stuff than, you know, your average uh, person, or in many cases, a lot of trainers, obviously, what would you say are a couple of the biggest things you see either owners do or trainers do that frustrate you because of the knowledge that you have? That you feel like they're just like either incorrect or counterproductive or whatever it may be? Yeah, it's a, that's a good question. I think we actually touched on all of uh, the things already. 
I think the biggest thing really is coming down to becoming comfortable with your dog's arousal level. You know, seeing this as like something that puts your dog, makes your dog a learning monster. (laughs) So you can teach even the calmer behaviors through the arousal, Mm -hmm. um, even though that sounds like contradicting each other, but it's actually not. Um, So that part and, you know, also in that context, when you get a puppy and your first thing is you take it to a puppy class and want to teach all the obedience, right? Sit mm-hmm. down the stay before you even know who your puppy is. I think there's a lot of missed opportunities to, to set the right tone, if you will, or to create a routine of this is how we play together or interact and a routine mm-hmm. of now you're also just by yourself obviously in the creator or whatever is supervised, well, not supervised, but by yourself. Setting this all in place first before you go into now we work together and train for something is kind of like skipping really important steps to make you someone your dog really wants to work with and to make you someone that your dog can live with, wants to live with, but also can be without for a little bit of time. Because mm-hmm. we have either this over-dependence on input, 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 right? Um, or we have total, we're not doing anything ever together unless we go in this, to this class once a week. Mm. Yeah. So kind of that part, that initial, let's get to know each other is missing a lot of time and having a little more confidence can do it. It's really hard, especially with a puppy, but you don't necessarily need to start out with a puppy class at eight weeks. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever seen anybody who's done a puppy class from the standpoint of those like eight week old programs that's really gained the long term skills that they need with the dog. And that's not even an obedience thing. It's just you mentioned routine. It's like I I feel like a lot of issues I see with dogs are because owners don't have clear routines of how they do some of the things with them, whatever way you're (laughs) going to do them, just like having some predictability in the dog's life, right? (laughs) Or having some routine as far as them knowing what to expect in different situations and stuff like that. I feel like it goes like, it goes such a long way. Uh, And a lot of the frustration and confusion I see come out of dogs is because they don't know what's expected of them at any time because the routine is constantly changing, you know? Um, And with puppies, like, man, like people don't realize like how, like, yes, puppies can be a little bit of a pain in the ass sometimes. Like, don't get me wrong with like the potty training and the crate training and like all that kind of stuff. Like some of it can be a real freaking headache, right? Uh But, But like past those two things, I will say, everything else can be pretty damn easy, you know, if you, if you really almost like do less, right? And just, just like I said, observe who your dog is, have predictable routines for stuff and not try to just like cram and force everything right off the rip, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, it's being like, you, you keep forgetting how time consuming and, and frustrating it can be to have a puppy because every time you see a puppy, it's like, I want another puppy. <laughs> but it's like really tough to raise a puppy. Mm-hmm. But we often assume having a puppy is the best part of getting a dog. But yeah. no, it's like, I want to skip to the part where I can actually have this focused dog yeah. that I can work with. Um, because at the initial phase, it's really, really difficult. Yeah. And um, I had um, a puppy recently. It's a hunting kind of hunting kind of dog, uh, three months old. And, you know, based on the breed and, and all, like really active. Like the owner is really struggling with the arousal level. Yeah, yeah. And being okay with saying, okay, I get up in the morning, but I don't have to be with this dog for four hours. I get up in the morning, potty break, load of play, 
feeding, party break again, and then you go and back into your crate for two hours. Like, don't feel guilty for that and have your own morning routine. And I took this 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 puppy uh, to the vet, and it was obviously in the environment the dog hasn't been in, people the dog hasn't seen. It was like really the entire time active. And this is maybe another one of these things, like the dog, the vet um, suggested to see a vet behaviorist <laughs> potentially discuss medication. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. That makes me really, really sad. Yeah. Because that's... And this was a, this was what, a 10-week-old puppy, something like that? 12 said? weeks. 12, 12 weeks. weeks. Yeah, yeah. Three months. Unbelievable, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's like... Fortunately, they're like because we work together, they know, yeah. they know that this is definitely not not the way to go. Yeah. Um, but it seems to be like so abnormal if you have an, an aroused puppy or an aroused yeah. dog or an, an excited dog or a dog with a lot of energy. It's like that can't be that can't be normal. Yeah, it can't be. Got to do something about it. And then instead of thinking about like really good, how do I train this and, and dive into it? The first option is medication. Oftentimes, yeah. And there will be a lot of people who say, no, that's not true. And medication has changed my life. Yes, that certainly can help. But again, it just suppresses it. The true needs of this dog. And do we really want this with all the things that we're doing for our dogs? With all yeah. these have to be the best humans and um, pure positive only, only treats. But then we give them medication to suppress the anxiety level that we kind of induce in other maybe subconscious ways. Yeah. I don't know. We got to question these things a little bit more and be a little bit more critical with our own decision making. Yeah. That's, I mean, the, the medication thing is like a whole freaking, I mean, we could go off four hours talking about that. Obviously, we have a lot of opinions <laughs> yeah. on that. It's interesting. Like a lot of the people that I've heard preach that medication has helped my dog so much also. Like, I don't want to say it didn't help them, but at the same time, I do think there's a big like placebo effect at play sometimes too of like I'm paying $300 a month on freaking dog medication. So I have to convince myself that it's doing something when in actuality, like we'll meet the dog and it's like your dog's still pretty freaking out of control, (laughs) right? They still have a lot of behaviors that you originally put the dog on the medication for in the first place, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's tough. And then the, like the, the recommending with a, with a puppy, like medic, you know, going to see a behaviorist, which we know is probably going to prescribe some sort of medication. It's like, there's also plenty of dogs that just don't really like the vet, but are fine everywhere else. You know, like I see that yeah. all the time where owners will call me and they are like crying. Cause it's like, they've been doing so well with their training everywhere, but they had a bad vet visit. And then the vet like basically convinces them that everything is terrible and they need to go to a behaviorist and this and that. And it's like, <laughs> but how's the rest of your day to day going? They're like, it's great. I was like, how many times? Uh, how many times a year do you go to the vet? They're like, maybe once. I'm like, okay. So it's like, maybe yeah. don't worry too much about it. It's like, yeah, there's things we could do to improve yeah. on that, obviously. But like, that's yeah. such a small part of of dogs' lives. And in a lot of cases, when the vets are recommending these medications, they're going off of only their observations in this like high stress, high pressure environment, which is the vet office. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's tough. Yeah. You know, it, it's obviously like you said, a very complicated topic, and. Yeah. Um, I want to say, obviously, not all vets are like this, and people come to them, even behaviors, for help, and they help the way they can, which is, they're not there to see you once a week at your home and go through tedious training with you. They're there to give you immediate relief in one way or another, and in a way, you also pay a lot of money just to see a behaviorist. You're not going to walk out there saying, I don't know, go on longer walks, you know, so you kind of... Kind of everyone is in the in the kind of situation which kind of just comes down to we kind of need to all start to just 
look deeper into what this all means rather than having quick fixes yeah. and enjoying the ride. Even if there are lots of downs, <laughs> enjoy the ride. Yeah, I saw your post about progress, like not always being this and not always mm -hmm. being this, but sometimes it's, you know, right, right, right. Which yeah. is, uh, which is very much, very much true for sure. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you got anything else you want to add, Josh? No, I'm just, <laughs> this one I, I had to just zone in and take it all in. <laughs> <clears throat> Josh is our, 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 we tell all the guests, he's our, he's our non dog training, uh, layman's terms guy. So he, yeah. he asked like the, the regular, the regular day to day owner questions and, you know. Yeah, but that one was, uh, <laughs> I had to soak that one in. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but listen, this was, this yeah. was fantastic. I have literally, like I, like I said, I binge watched your content over the last like couple of days here. And I have probably like 800 questions that I think maybe I asked like one of them. So, uh, <laughs> I would definitely love to love to do this again at some time, uh, and get sure. more into some of that other kind of stuff, but I really mm -hmm. appreciate you coming on. And, yeah. um, like I said, I really, Pleasure. really like the work that you're doing. So happy to have Thank you. you. Thank you. So anything Thank you, you want to add? Mm -hmm. No, I, I think it was, like it was good stuff. We, uh, say again? Oh, I was going to say, you know, tell people where to find you all that. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, um, everything. I post a lot of things online. Obviously, the world is happening online. So, Canine Decoded, it is. Um, and my my website is canindecoded.com, canindecoded on Instagram, Canine Decoded, I think even on TikTok, although I don't really do much on TikTok. And, yeah, everyone who's listening, come and say hi. Hell, yeah. Well, until next time, we uh, we appreciate you being on, and uh, I'll uh, yeah. I'll send you everything once it comes out, and you feel free to use whatever you want. Sounds good, love All it. Right. We'll see you. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.